Hello, I'm Rena Grobe, and I'm Madhvi Ramani, and this is Misinformed, where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So, Madhvi, what did you get obsessed with this week? As you know, we've been on holiday, the Misinformed team, and I have been to Sicily, which is amazing. I had a lot of food. I visited some beautiful places and saw this Baroque architecture and these old medieval towns. Chilled by the beach was super nice. But I've noticed a thing about Sicily. Like when we were going to the airport, the driver said, "Oh, Sicily, the mafia." And one of the first things that comes to mind when you think of Sicily. In terms of popular culture and associations, is the mafia, and people say it like it's not really a terrible thing. The mafia have killed so many innocent people, families, journalists, judges, lawyers. They have extorted so much money, caused so much pain and injustice, and yet is kind of glorified and glamorized. I remember being in Spain and Malaga and seeing a restaurant called La Mafia. For me, that's totally inappropriate because you wouldn't call a restaurant, I don't know, Son of Sam. So I was really thinking about why do people treat the mafia and talk about the mafia in a totally different way than they do other criminals and other criminal organizations. I think that's super fascinating because the very first thing that I thought of when you said that, or when we were talking about this, was this idea of the gentleman burglar. You have like Lupin, which is a big Netflix show right now, where you also kind of have the same thing, right? It's, I mean, not maybe not entirely the same thing because he's not going around killing people and murdering people and extorting people, but there is something in our culture that we kind of admire. People who break the law, who we sort of perceive to be kind of suave and gentlemanly, and you know, sort of have something to them. There's a super fascinating article in the New Yorker, which is called "Why Do We Admire Mobsters?" by Maria Konnikova, and she just starts it off by describing a story from a girl called Elaine Slot. Was in 1947, is 16 years old, and she goes to Florida to visit her. Uncle and aunt, and then from there they go to Cuba and they drive out of Havana, and they end up at this house, and there's a dinner party happening there. Her uncle's there, and the host introduces himself as Charlie, and she talks about how when the dessert comes out, she mistakenly thinks that the plate of dessert meant to be shared is just for her, and all the people around the table laugh when she proclaims, "I could never eat this." And then the host Charlie says, "Oh, if you eat all of it, I'll give you two dollars." Keeping in mind this is 1947, so two dollars is more money than it was now. And other people also chime in. And she eats all the food. She gets the money. She buys souvenirs. And a couple weeks later, she sees in the newspaper a headline that says, "Charles Lucky Luciano captured in Havana." And she's like, "Oh my God, that was a mobster boss we were having dinner with." And she thinks back of this idea of being like, "Oh wow!" To her, this man was just this gentleman. He was charismatic. He was a loving person. He was fun, 
and like how she can't align these two ideas into her head of him being this like brutal mobster boss, but also being the man who like laughs and gives her $2 for eating a massive plate of dessert. And so she kind of goes on to sort of elaborate how it's actually kind of not surprising that family members will paint this idyllic picture of their mobster ancestors because, you know, every mobster is also a father, a brother, an uncle, and that it doesn't spill over into these roles. And in fact, there's some sort of weird purity around this where as a person, this idea of, ah, yes, but they're loving, they love their family, they love their community, they stick up for their values, they have morals, but they're also these villains. And how it's like the balancing act between these two things and how, I don't know, it feels justified. And it's a super fascinating article. Also, it's like very highly specific, though, to the American Italian mafia, because I do think that the way that we view the Italian American mafia and the way that the Sicilian mafia or the Italian mafia in general is kind of like viewed and portrayed is potentially different. Because I think in America, there's this massive glamorization of it that comes through like Martin Scorsese, The Godfather's Soprano, so on and so forth, which, you know, we all know that the U.S. is an entertainment hotbed. So, of course, that they would take something like this and... Yeah. And I think that even Martin Scorsese himself has said that he finds the mafia lifestyle really glamorous and there's something chic about it. And I also think that's because we like, you know, we associate it not really with the reality of the crimes, but more so like we think, oh, yeah, Frank Sinatra, he was, you know, it was rumored that he was involved with the mafia. So we have this idea of them being, ah, yeah, Frank, he's, you know, the epitome of class and elegance and sophistication so people associated with him must be all of these things and then of course it doesn't help that through these movies we're given this fake it might be insight into who they are and their personalities and I also think that yeah of course it's easier to admire a man who you think walks around being nice to his wife in a suit who has principles versus something else yeah so what you're saying is completely right because there's a big difference between how the Americans and therefore wider dominant sort of Western culture sees the mafia and how the Sicilians themselves or the Italians in general perceive the mafia. In the article you just mentioned, there are three main reasons for this kind of distinction and this difference in perception. The first one is actually because of prohibition. So the mafia became really big in the US because after the Volstead Act, which outlawed alcohol, it solidified sort of organized crime into this kind of mafia organization in the US. And the Volstead Act and the banning of alcohol in the US was really unpopular. You know, people want to drink and therefore the what turned into the American mafia enabled people to get their hands on alcohol so they were kind of seen as the good guys the guys who were you know giving the finger to authority and this it was kind of glamorous in a way you know they were the guys who were gutsy enough to decide what to do on their own and this blurring of the lines of morality like to drink not to drink that was the line right so it wasn't so terrible actually what they did in the US and how they started in the US at least. And this initial impression just carried all the way through. And if you look at, like you were saying, Boardwalk Empire, which actually super glamorous portrayal of the mafia, if you look at their suits, how they are styled, this sort of 1920s styling, it's super glamorous, like you say. And 
it tracks the birth of the mafia really with Arnold Rothstein and all of these people with the birth of the mafia in the US. And then linked to this, another reason why people in the US tend to glamorize the mafia as opposed to the Italians is because of this concept of psychological distance. So of course there's psychological distance in terms of time because, you know, there's all this nostalgia of the 1920s and the untouchables and all this kind of stuff. But there's also a kind of psychological distance in terms of the people in the US were not so affected by the results of the crimes of the mafia as in Italy. So it's easy to glamorize warfare when there's no draft or idealize anyone whose lifestyle seems risky and edgy without putting you personally at risk. So that's why, you know, spies, secret agents, all of this kind of stuff are super glamorized. And in the US, the mafia is not so pervasive as in Italy. I remember reading Gomorra, which was a very famous book by the writer Roberto Saviano, who actually, because of this book, uh, had to go under police protection, had a death threat on him, which just shows, you know, how dangerous it is to say anything about the mafia. But for example, like the Italian's fashion industry is really famous, and all these big fashion houses are really famous, but in Naples, the Neapolitan Mafia, Camorra, they own all of these warehouses and the factories that buy the fabric to make the orders for all these big brands. And so the people who are working in these factories, who are making some of the most expensive garments in the world that you know, people are wearing on the red carpet, are getting paid under the counter really, really low wages. So it says it's made in Italy and you think it's not made under terrible conditions or less than minimum wage, but they actually are because of the mafia. So it's so pervasive in Italy, the mafia, that it affects taxes, everyone's livelihoods, everyone's access to hospitals and how the rubbish gets collected and stuff like that so it's not really glamorized whereas in the US you can glamorize it because it's such a small part and it's not filtering through into your everyday life and then she does make one third point about why the US glamorize the mafia and that's because of what she terms Italian otherness so the Italians are other in American society but they're not so different from white Americans that they're kind of other to the extent that they're a threat. You normally have in-groups and out-groups in psychology, and if another identity is really too separate from ours, they feel like a threat. But if they're somewhere in between, for example, if they're white, if they have you know some foods that you could eat that you're familiar with, then you can admire them. So even people who are like all-American are sort of fascinated by Italian mobsters and admire them without thinking that this other group will be a threat to them. And she points out that it's no coincidence that the other glamorized mob figures in the US are Irish. For example, you know, you've got the departed, black mass, all of that. And then for other reasons, for example, you know, language, culture, race, people who are Chinese or Russian, like these mobs, they are way harder to romanticize and they don't get romanticized as much. So race and culture also play a part in this. 
Natalie Wynn of the YouTube channel ContraPoints has a super fascinating video about the concept of justice. And in it, she talks about how there's this character called the Punisher. And he's very looked up to by specifically the American police in this instance, because he has values that he sticks to, but he functions outside of the justice system and does what he sees correct. So he sees himself sort of like as a moral enforcer in this case. I think the story is, is that like, his wife and kid is killed, and now he just is going about seeking revenge. And once he starts killing, he can't stop killing, but he only kills bad guys. And you do see this weird fascination with that in our society, be it like Dexter, if you've ever watched that TV show, which is about a guy who works for the police who goes around killing people who get away with crimes, or the Death Note, which is all about, you know, it's a Japanese comic book and anime about a young man who, you know, takes justice into his own hands, you know, when the law fails, essentially. So I think all of these like kind of threads really tie into the mafia, don't they? Because people are willing to look away from the bad if there are some good things happening. And also it's interesting because if you Google, for example, Sicilian mafia, you will get images of guys in track pants and like not that great looking sort of clothes. Whereas if you Google American Italian mafia or something, you get that 1920s sort of Frank Sinatra aesthetic. So yeah, there is something to this glamorization of one to the other. I think also the fact that like, ah, the actual mafia bosses themselves, right, are known for like never getting their hands dirty. So you can like sort of compartmentalize like that, can't you? You're saying like, ah, yeah, this is my uncle, my father. This is a man who sticks to certain moral codes, but he's actually doesn't have any blood on his hands. The distancing aspect that you were talking about before. And I, I do think that we humans have a need for justice and revenge and sort of, I feel like maybe that's potentially why we set up our legal system, right? Because we want people who we perceive as bad to be punished. So organizations like the mafia or, you know, the Punisher or the Death Note, we have this feeling of people get away. And so we feel better when people are punished that we perceive as bad. And not to say that the mafia only punishes people who are bad, but I think we do glamorize this idea of people taking things into their own hands and working outside of the constraints of the law, specifically when the law fails. Yeah, I also think that just as a society, we have this weird fascination with this idea of a bad boy in quotation marks, because it's always just a very certain specific type of bad boy in quotation mark who is glamorized. There is a very racist element to it as well, isn't there? This idea you're talking about, about these good bad guys, is something that has been pushed by the mafia themselves. So in November 2007, Sicilian police reported this discovery of a list of 10 commandments in the hideout of a mafia boss called Salvatore Lopicolo. And it's thought to be guidelines on good, respectful, and honorable conduct for a mafioso. And, I don't know, number two is never look at the wives of friends. And number seven is wives must be treated with respect. Also, the mafioso themselves call themselves men of honor. There's nothing honorable about anything they're doing, right? In order to do all the disgusting things they're doing, and to justify themselves, and to still keep some sort of identity... They're presenting themselves as, you know, they've got Ten Commandments, like the Bible has got Ten Commandments. You know, it's like religion. And number four of this is don't go into pubs or clubs. Number nine is interesting. Money cannot be appropriated if it belongs to others or to other families. Obviously, 
they're appropriating money all over the place. But one of the kind of rules, and not much is known about the Sicilian Mafia or the Mafia in general, I mean, there are a bunch of different organizations that sort of operate in an organized way. But what seems to be kind of true when we talk about this sort of organized aspect of the Mafia is that they just don't go around robbing people and stealing straight up. So, you know, if you're walking down the street and you get mugged, that's probably not a mafia thing. Whereas if you've got a business and you're a private business owner and you're getting extorted for a certain amount of protection money, then that is the mafia, which is still, in principle, money that is being appropriated that belongs to other people. So it's insane and really does not make any sense, these rules. There seems to be a lot of all this honor stuff. I always think honor is the last resort of people who just have nothing else, honestly. But it's also interesting what you were saying about, you know, people operating outside the law, because I was looking into the history of the mafia. And I guess I'll discuss the Sicilian mafia since Sicily is the thing that started this investigation, I guess, or this obsession. So the Sicilian mafia is called Cosa Nostra, which means our thing. And the genesis of Cosa Nostra is a little bit hard to trace because it's secretive and they don't have historical records and stuff. However, the mafia did begin as a kind of extra-legal force in the 19th century, and it coincided with the shift of Sicily's transition from feudalism to capitalism. So what happened under feudalism is the nobility just kind of owned everything, whereas after that there became more private property and a number of different landowners, and this switch was quite significant. So from 1812... You went from 2,000 landowners in Sicily to 20,000 by 1861. And so with this increase in property owners, there became sort of more disputes that needed settling and contracts that needed enforcing and all this kind of stuff. So the barons had their private armies to let the state take over the enforcing of the law, but the new authorities were not up to the task because of kind of different official laws and local customs and stuff. So basically, there were often fewer than 350 active policemen on the entire island, officially. And some towns didn't even have a permanent police force, which meant that in an interim, these kind of private, extra-legal protectors started to do this job. And these were supposedly the first mafia clans. And the mafia was, and still largely is, a Western Sicilian phenomenon, not necessarily very present in the whole of the island. So a 2015 study in the Economic Journal said that the earlier mafia activity was strongly linked to Sicilian municipalities that were abundant in sulfur, which was at that time Sicily's most valuable export commodity. So... A combination of like a weak state and a lootable natural resource kind of made the sulfur-rich parts of Sicily vulnerable to the emergence of mafia-type organizations. And then in 2019, another study in the Review of Economic Studies linked the mafia activity to the rise of socialist peasant fasci organizations, where in an environment with weak state presence, a socialist threat triggered landowners, estate managers, and local politicians to turn to the mafia to resist and combat peasant demands. So there seems to be 
this kind of what you're saying, like people operating outside the law because the law or the current structures were not strong enough to hold by themselves. So it left this gap. And what I found really interesting during this research was that a guy called Leopoldo Franchetti said this in 1876. The mafia would never disappear unless the very structure of the island's social institutions were to undergo a fundamental change. And then over a century later, Diego Gambetti kind of said the same thing, and he said, the mafia exists because the government does not provide adequate protection to merchants for property crime, fraud, and breaches of contracts. He said that Sicily, in the early 1990s, had no clear property rights legislation or administrative or financial codes of practice, and that its court system was appalling in its inefficiency. And so basically, if you have a strong, active, non-corrupt government, there is no possibility for the mafia to exist. And a hundred years later, it still does exist in Sicily. It's not as strong as it was like in the 1980s, you know, when a lot of people were getting murdered. There was a lot of violence. Whole families were being killed. So that's not happening anymore. But it's still there at a structural level especially administratively. So, for example, Sicily, because of where it's based, and also Italy, because of where it's based, the whole of southern Italy, gets a lot of refugees, and a lot of these refugee centres are mafia-fronted, which is terrible because this is a humanitarian crisis, and you have people who are only interested in extortion, managing these places, and not providing things like proper medical care, but then taking 35 euros a day per head in order just to make money. And the government does not seem to be capable or strong enough to provide an alternative or to fight this in the appropriate manner. So although, of course, the mafia is not operating how it did 30, 40 years ago in Sicily, it's still actually tied up very much with government and corruption. One of the big things that contribute to this like idea of honor, specifically in American society, is because actually the American mafia or the American branch of the mafia is not as violent as the Sicilian one. So it's a lot easier for people to glamorize it because they actually don't have the same confrontation with violence that other people in like Sicily do. I asked the lovely designer who made all of our brand assets for Misinformed. He's also from Sicily. I asked him about this, how he feels about the mafia. And he actually said that he feels like it's not just the mafia that's glamorized. He feels like it's Italy in general, this idea of le dolce vita and, and, and the elegance and sophistication and all of it is, is glamorized and a not accurate sort of portrayal of the country. But I was thinking about how a friend of mine, she was getting her Italian passport because her grandfather is Italian. And it turns out he never renounced his citizenship. He just didn't renew his passport. And when she was going to get her passport, someone was like, all right, you contact this lawyer, you give them this much money, you don't ask any questions. And she did that. And a month later, she got a passport in the mail. And on that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Number one, instead of watching glamorized Scorsese films, try watching Shooting the Mafia, a documentary about the photojournalist Letizia Battaglia, 
who is an amazing photographer and she started doing photographs for her local newspaper at the age of 40 after she divorced her husband and her entire career she shot photos of the violence and the destruction that the mafia caused in Italy and her story is really inspiring to see so uh, we'll link to it in our newsletter the whole documentary if you haven't subscribed yet subscribe thing two if you are going to go watch mafia films the Martin Scorsese film or the Sopranos take the time to maybe google the people and do your research and just learn the actual history and the real story behind who they are and what they did and lastly if you see an Italian person or Sicilian person Please don't say, oh, the mafia, when they say that they're Italian or Sicilian, because it's super offensive and not representative of just how beautiful and rich Italy is and how loving and brilliant the people are too. Until next week, thank you for listening. Goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube for news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references and other geeky inspiration subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com misinformed. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.